Hello, and welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. As we continue in our study of the book of Daniel, we are in the sixth chapter and the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Class teacher Doug Brady digs very deeply into this story and explains each part of it. Last week, we studied the first 14 verses of the chapter, and you can catch up in the beginning of the story by going to Lesson 17 in our recorded package. But for today, in Lesson 18, we finish the story of Daniel in the lion's den. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Our class meets every Sunday morning at 9.15 in the LaVorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new worship center. Over 110 people attended today's class, and we continue to grow. We would love to see and visit with you in our classroom if you happen to be in the area. The teaching of the Bible by Doug is very deep and very interesting. We hope to see you soon. Well, I see Doug is at the podium ready to begin, so let's go into the classroom of the Believer's Bible Class. Here now is our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. We're studying the book of Daniel. We're coming to the end of the chiasm. Now, I don't have the the slide to show you, but I think you've, you've seen it well enough. Now, I know there's some of you sitting in here, chiasm, what in the world is a chiasm? Well, it's a form of writing and organizing thoughts from an oriental point of view, and it's kind of like an X. But you remember in chapter 5, there was another chapter in Daniel that would be related to it. You remember what chapter that was? Three. In both times, people had to make life threatening decisions whether to obey God or not. You remember in chapters 4 and chapters 5, they were related. And what was the basic theme in that? You're going to be prideful and not humble yourself before God. That's the end of you. Do you remember that? Nebuchadnezzar decided to humble himself. If he hadn't, what would have happened to him? He had been an animal the rest of his life. Belshazzar... He decided not to humble himself like his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar did, and he was put to death. Now, chapter 2 we looked at, and that was where the statute was, right? And it predicted, it predicted what was going to happen in the future. You remember, it predicted how many kingdoms? Nobody remembers how many? Six. Six. The head, the shoulders and arms. Well, what was the head? Babylon, the shoulders and arms, Medo-Persia, the flanks and abdomen, the loins and legs, iron of Rome, and then what was next after that? The feet or toes, partly of iron, partly of clay, and that represented a revived Roman Empire, and then the stone cut out without hands. Six kingdoms. Now, 
You remember, we talked about this. The liberals want to say, well, it was written in the second century and all those things were there and the historian could see them. We now looking at that in some respects, think, well, that's not prophecy. That's history. Well, for us, it is. For Daniel, it wasn't. Daniel was living in the time of the head, the golden head of Nebuchadnezzar. And that was all he knew about when he first got that. Now, who was that vision in chapter two given to? Nebuchadnezzar. And he sees this magnificent statue. Now, not next week, but the week after, we're going to look at chapter seven. It's the companion to chapter two. But this time, Daniel gets the vision. Nebuchadnezzar's vision was a human perspective. God's, pers I mean, Daniel's perspective is going to be a divine perspective. So Nebuchadnezzar sees this magnificent statue. Daniel's going to see what? Beasts. Wicked, evil beasts. That's the way God sees the world system. And that's the way he's going to portray it. And I wanted you to see that. Now, I also want you to remember that last week, Dawn asked a very important question, and I wasn't as up on it maybe as I should have been in being able to answer it. I may have been able to con her into thinking that I knew what I was talking about, but probably not. She's a very difficult person to con. But I have a chart here for you, and this shows the chronological order of things. And I want you to see this. Chapter 1 is the start. And then chapter two, it's chronologically. And chapter three, uh, five, I mean, follows that. The other two chapters, three and four, were in there, but we don't know exactly uh, when those events occurred. But this event on chapter five, the handwriting of the wall, we know occurred on October 12, 539 BC. Now, Harold Honer will tell you the exact time it happened. I I'm not able to go with that. But notice now, we're going to get to, you think, well, you start thinking in English, well, 553, that's after 539. No, it's not. That's before. And 551 is before. So when we get in chapter 7 next time, we're going backwards in chronology. But you got to understand, that's a chiastic way of viewing it. And that's the reason. You say, but 8's not in the chiasm. No, it's the start of a new section in the book. Chapter 7, what language is it written in? Aramaic. Chapter 8, what language is it written in? Hebrew. Hebrew. Chapter, chapters, chapter 2, verse 4 starts the Aramaic. It's written to the world. But when you get here in chapter 8 onward, it's written as a warning, these prophecies, to Israel. What's going to happen to you? And it's not very nice what's going to happen, at least to start with. And so we will see those pictures. One of the most important prophecies in anywhere in the Bible outside of salvation prophecies is right there in chapter 9. When we get there, who knows how long we'll spend on Daniel 9, 24 through 27. It is so rich, so packed in. We're going to unpack it like a treasure chest and look at it. But today we're finishing chapter 6 of the book of Daniel. You notice the title on your lesson is Don't Get Caught Lying. Jerry thought I had misspelled it at first, but you're going to see what I mean by what happens to these guys today who were lying to the king and trying to con him. Now, 
as you're looking at this chart, you need to see that Darius, he only reigned for about a year. And then it appears that Cyrus appointed his son Cambyses as vice regent over Babylon with himself. And Cyrus continued to rule this empire until 530 BC. Now, in the first part of chapter six, we saw how Daniel was set up. Why? Was Daniel a good administrator? Yes. So why did these other people want to get rid of Daniel? That's exactly right. They were stealing. They were corrupt. They were negligent. They had bad judgment, but they were siphoning off. They were, you know, the mob would call it skimming. That's what they were doing. And you don't want an honest man involved if you're skimming. Now, we're going to look at verse 14, but before we read God's word, let's pray. Father, as we open up the scriptures and we seek to know your will and your way, help us to understand the means that you use and the direction that you want us to look, the way that you want us to walk with you. Help us to understand as we're going to have to give up things in this, in this country, our freedoms and our opportunity to worship freely as the future comes upon us so fast. Help us to remember the sacrifices you made, how a father could give up his son to have happened to him what happened, and the love that that shows for us. Help us to be able to return that love to you, Father, in a demonstrable way as you put us in front of a lion's den or a fiery furnace. And we have to make choices whether or not to compromise. Help us to be like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah and say, no, we won't. Pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Looking at verse 14, it says, Then as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. Now, I want us to, to look at the king's activities here in this part of this chapter. So the first thing is, what did he hear about Daniel? He's broken your law. And as a result, he must die. There's nothing you can do about it, king. Now, this was early in the morning when they approached him. And so what did the king do? He retired to his chambers. He called his lawyers. He called his legislators. He called anybody he could who he thought could help him. How do we get Daniel out of this? And all of those lawyers and all of those advisors and all of those other people said, we can't come up with a way. At the end of the day, these varlets come back and they say to him, verse 15, then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, recognize, O king, that is the law of the Medes and the Persians, that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. And we know that to be true. Then the king gave orders and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. So the law was complied. Dawn. Do we know the nature of that word cast? It means to be either thrown or lowered into or placed into. It can be that or it can. But since when they brought him out, there was no hurt left in him or observed on him, he probably was not thrown because the hole is going to have to be tall enough up where a lion can't jump up and snatch you as you are fixing to lower somebody or put someone in there, which 
lions have an ability to jump pretty darn far and you know standing up there you have a yeah, you know, the people that were killed because of what they did, they didn't even reach the ground. No, the lions didn't reach the, I mean, the, the ones they threw in didn't reach the ground before the lions had them. They were waiting for them, yes. occasion this year where I fell, and I was falling into all these rocks, and I felt an angel just lay me down. Hmm. I went, what was that? And it, it, the angel could have just been... Well, Obviously, based on these two things, especially what Gary just said, did Daniel go into the lion's den and then his uh, savior or guardian come? No, the guardian had to be there ahead of time to keep the lions off him as they were putting him in. But we'll see that in just a second because we want to know who that guardian is. Now, this is the general statement. You know, I find, I read archaeology reports, archaeological reports a lot because I'm interested in those kinds of things. Some of you may not think archaeological, archaeology is very cool. I, I tried to minor in Middle Eastern archaeology when I was uh, at the university. And one of the things I found these last two weeks is that excavations uh, of the ruins of Babylon, they found a pit. And this pit contained an inscription that read, this is where the wild beasts kill men who anger the king. Interesting. But that was the, what they did. And you remember, lions were plentiful in this area at this time. Now, they've all been killed out now. But lions roam this area. If you remember, it's interesting, God said to Joshua when they were going, I could just destroy all the Canaanites and Amorites right now. But if I did, the wild animals would be too much for you. So I can't just kill them immediately. We're going to have to do it over a period of time. Interesting concept. Now, also, this den, the word translated here, den, is really a pit that's cut out of rock or earth. And the, in fact, the Aramaic word translated den, its primary meaning is akin to the Hebrew word to dig. Now, I think it's important for us to see this, I'm, I'm trying to lay a predicate for this, and that is the, the den that Daniel was placed into had a hole, at least one entrance at the top. It may have had an entrance on the side so that they could clean it out and do stuff. Otherwise, it's going to start stacking up with bones. But you have one on the top, and that top, you closed it with a rock that you would roll over in place. You see? So it's cut out of rock. Door that people are put in through is covered with a rock that's put in place. And I want you to remember that because we're going to talk about that in just a second again. Now, in verse, the second part of verse 16 says this, And the king spoke and said to Daniel, Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. Now, first of all, what's that implying about Darius. He's not a believer yet. Well, I'm not sure about that. We'll talk about it in just a second. But what is it saying about him in relation to what God's going to do? Gary? I think two things are working together. I think, I think that, that because Darius believes in the Lord and because he's seen that Daniel believes in the Lord, he's, given, he's been given wisdom and understanding about what is to happen. Well, let's say this. I think that 
he's hoping that what's going to happen. He's not sure yet. And you're going to see that in a second. But what is he saying? Your God will deliver you. Who tried to deliver him? He did. He tried. Yes, Darius tried. And what did he do? He failed. So your God's going to have to deliver you because I can't. That's the one thing he's saying. But it is a positive statement based on what Gary just said. Your God will deliver you. Not I hope your God will. He doesn't say that, does he? But he says, your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. That, that word will, I, I'm just curious, is that the same word in the original language? Because yes. Fairly emphatic that he's going to deliver you. That's what he's saying. Now, some people could say, well, he's just saying that to be encouraging. You know, that's mother speak. You know, your mother always encourages you. Well, maybe, maybe not. But a stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and the signet rings of his nobles, so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. Now notice this. The king has his signet ring, and he seals it. Why does he have to have the nobleman seal it? Ah, remember there was an adversarial situation here. What did the nobles want? Daniel to die. What did the king want? Okay, so if both parties seal it, they come back in the morning and one of the seals is broken, then they know, you see. The king, if it's only the king's seal, he could come back, roll the stone away, get Daniel out of there, and then roll it back and seal it again and say, well, you know, he's not there. He got, his God brought him out. You see, so you'd have to have to do that. You'd have to have both sides reseal it. And that's why they did that because they didn't trust each other and appropriately so for the king to make that determination. But now I want you to notice this because I saw this. I thought this is really cool. The righteous man. And let's talk about that a second. Can anybody in here tell me a sin that Daniel's committed? I think the answer is no. There's no record of any sin. Now, does that mean he's sinless? No, but there's no record. I'm not sure there's any other person in the scriptures that's spoken of for any length of time that doesn't mention a sin about because God tells it like it is. He doesn't hide the bad or the good. But Daniel's the, this, this man who was righteous and didn't break the law here and shouldn't have been imprisoned, much less executed, is placed into this den or pit cut out in the rock, a stone is rolled across the front. It's then sealed with the seals of the kings and the noblemen. Now, is anybody going to come back to this den? When? Around 10 or 11? No, early in the morning. He gets up right at the... Now, can you think of an event that happened sometime after this that has some similarities to that? Let's read in Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 59. Then Joseph, and this is Joseph of Arimathea, took the body, wrapped it in clean linen cloth, and laid it in his new tomb, which had been hewn out of the rock. See that? And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. Well, no, wait a second. It wasn't sealed. Oh, wait, we just haven't read far enough. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver, 
Man, if I was God, I'd want to strike him with lightning right then when they called his son a deceiver. That deceiver said, after three days, I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people he has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. They need to, I bet you they know now that there was no deception. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. And Pilate said to them, you have a guard, make it as secure as you know. And they went and they made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. And then early the next morning after that, who showed up to start with? Two women. And immediately, what did they do? They ran and got Peter and John. Do you see the similarities here? God is foreshadowing an event that's going to occur. You can put my man in a hewn-out rock, put your rock there, seal it, do the very best you can. Won't stop me. Won't stop me. I'm in control, and you're not. You may think you are, but you are not. And so you look on. The thing I want you to see as we read this next part of this passage, I think, let's, let's go on and look at Daniel 19. Then the king arose at dawn, at the break of day. Now, that's not Don Nobler time. That's, that's, that's actually sun, sun up. And when he came near the den to Daniel, he cried out in a troubled voice. Now, why did he call out in a troubled voice? I want you to look at something. Go back. And let's look. Go back to the last passage. And you see the stone was, was, brought, was brought over in verse 17. Now, I'm missing verse 18. I want you to read in your Bibles verse 18 for just a second. Then the king went off to his palace, and he spent the night fasting, and no entertainment was brought before him, and his sleep fled from him. Now, I want you to think about this a second because this is important. I believe there's three things it says happened in that palace. I want you to help me determine which are intentional and which are not intentional. Which are intentional and which are not. As I read this again in verse 18. Then the king went off to his palace. Well, let's say four things. And spent the night, he went off to his palace and spent the night fasting and no entertainment was brought before him and his sleep fled from him. Well, the first event, he went back to his palace. Intentional or not intentional? Intentional. intentional. And he spent the night fasting. Intentional or not intentional? Intentional. And uh, no entertainment was brought before him. Intentional or not intentional? Intentional. And sleep fled from him. Intentional or not intentional? Not intentional. But do you see what key to me here? He's fasting. Why is he fasting? It's interesting. What's another book that's written in the setting of the Persian kingdom. Esther. Does it say in there that Esther was praying? No. It says she's fasting. Which, from the Hebrew perspective, if you're fasting, you're praying. Fasting is, a, is praying on steroids, so to speak. He's praying. That's why I think I would agree with Gary that he is a believer. Now, he sees this as very, very important, not only to his friend, but to his kingdom. Daniel is key. Now, 
if the king's praying and fasting, he knows what's going on. Now, you're going to see in a second, what is the adjective he uses to apply to Daniel's God? Does anybody know? What, say that again. Living. living. The living God. What is that saying? All the other gods are either dead or non-existent, right? They're not alive. This is the only God that's alive. You say, the living God, you're referring only to the only God that's alive. Gary? I think, again, if you go to chapter 4, God, God does things that proves that he's alive. When he rescued the people out of Egypt, that proves that he's alive, that he's a living God. So I think what Darius is seeing through Daniel is that God does things Daniel, and he recognizes that Daniel's God is If Darius is a believer at this time, which I'm convinced he is, both on what he says, your God will deliver you, and the fact that he's praying to him all night, I don't want any entertainment, get out of here, I'm busy. And he couldn't sleep, and so he's fasting all night and praying, he's going to call the living God before Daniel, he knows whether Daniel's been rescued or not. I think that he has seen things in Daniel, just like Potiphar saw in, in Joseph, just like Pharaoh saw in Joseph. The, the living God in Daniel, he wanted that, and Daniel helped Darius with that. Yes? You know, not only, and I, I tend to believe that he was a believer too. From, I, I think that Daniel, their relationship was probably so close that there was conversations about that. It just wasn't a lifestyle of Daniel. There was deep conversation. I couldn't agree with you more, Mark. That's exactly right. Now, let's go on. Then the king arose at dawn, at, at the break of day, and he went in haste to the lion's den. And when he came near uh, to the den, near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a loud voice, with a pardon me, with a troubled voice. Now, young believer, he's not certain Daniel's going to be going to be saved. He wants it. He's not certain. And either that or a very mature believer who says, well, it may be God's will that he dies. It may not. But whatever God's going to do, that's what he's going to do. The same way Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah faced the furnace. Same way uh, now Daniel's facing the lion's den. And, and he said, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you constantly serve been able to deliver you from the lions. Now that concerns me a bit in my thinking because he's asking about God's ability. If he really knows God well, there's no question about his ability. He is a living God, he said, but is he able to do it? I looked at this. Could it be maybe he just, whether he chose or not? No, it's speaking of ability. Then Daniel spoke to the king. O king, live forever. Notice how he comes back polite, it's the correct protocol. He doesn't say, yeah, those dirty rats, they're going to get it now. Doesn't say that. He said, oh, king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths. And they have not harmed me inasmuch as I, found, I was found innocent before him. And also towards you, O oh, king, I have committed no crime. Then the king was very pleased. And he gave orders for Daniel to be taken out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury whatever was found on him because he had trusted in his God. In other words, they examined him. Is there any injury on this man? None at all. 
Now, it's interesting here. Daniel's talking about judgment. Just a second. Daniel's talking about judgment, okay? Do you remember what his name means? You know, Darius doesn't call him Belteshazzar. He calls him Daniel. Do you remember what Daniel means? God is my judge. Interesting, is less. talking back and forth. Uh, was the stone already removed? Yeah, he had the stone moved, I think. Unless you can talk through that stone, I think it would be hard. So I think it was moved. Yeah, uh, what the next, there you go. I think it's probably something like that. And so he's looking in, he, but it, you know, it's dark in there. And he's, he's saying that. Daniel's probably blinking. Now, you understand, there's something you need to understand because the liberals attacked it. Well, somebody just made a mistake, and those lions were so well fed that they didn't really want to eat Daniel. And that's the reason. I have some words I could say about that, but they'd be rather harsh. Uh, you know, we need to understand these lions were kept for means of capital punishment. Both their handlers and they obviously knew their job. This is not a situation where they were well fed and ignored Daniel because in verse 24, the other people couldn't reach the bottom before they started eating them and feeding on them. So we see, we see what they did to the officials who wrongfully accused Daniel. Now, I want you to notice for just a second, who's writing this narrative? Daniel. Does he not talk more about what went on in the palace than what went on in the pit? Evidently, he's saying it's not important for you to know what happened in the pit. I'm going to suggest to you some things that happened. King had only a small amount of confidence in Daniel's God. But Daniel was convinced that his God was in control and he would do exactly what he wanted to. Now, I know that what I'm going to say is going to cause a bit of an argument here. But we need to look. Who was it who rescued Daniel? Well, I'm not talking about the one who ordered it. He said somebody was there in the pit with him. Who was that? It says... His angel. We talked about this in chapter 3, if you remember. I strongly believe, and I did a little more research on this, and when you look at the book of Daniel, and it's talking about angelic beings, and it will, in the last 8 through 12, talk about them a great deal, uh, even in 7, you will see that many times it refers to them as a a man dressed in linen. And that's the way it describes an angel, angelic being. A man dressed in linen. Sometimes it refers to an angelic being directly by their name. Gabriel or Michael. Most of the time angels were involved in this book. They were there to deliver a message. Or they were sent uh, to give a prophecy. Or sometimes to minister to someone who needed ministering to. As in the, even the nation of Israel. But to me, it further appears that when there was an extreme need for protection, Jesus Christ appears. Now, I'm convinced that Jesus Christ was the fourth person in the furnace in chapter 3. Think about this just a second. If Jesus is going to come to protect Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, is he not going to come to protect Daniel? Send somebody else? You think about that just a second. Let's go on with this concept, because you look at the term his angel as opposed to an angel, this pronoun is genitive of possession. It refers, to, it's saying it's God's angel or the angel of God 
or the angel of the Lord, which is a phrase used constantly in the Old Testament to refer to a theophany, meaning an appearance of Jesus before his birth. I've cited, I've cited some passages there where this has occurred. For example, who was speaking to Moses from the burning bush? Not God. Angel of the Lord. I know, but when you say God, it could be the other two. Who specifically was the angel of the Lord? Well, Don, you're used to lawyers enough. You ought to know that the nitty-gritty is all they're about. Now, going further, do you remember when Abraham was standing on Mount Moriah, his son's hands and feet were tied. He had his head up. He was fixing to slice his throat to sacrifice him to God. Your firstborn son, who called down, said, don't do it. The angel of the Lord. I've given you six passages there. The one who talked to Gideon, the one who talked to Samson's parents before he was born, telling him he was going to be born. Over and over and over, we see this. Now, this was later in, the, you're going to find it in notes yet that's at the end, but I want to talk about it now. In 1784, I think it was, there was a French archaeologist who was doing archaeology digs in the area of Babylon, in the city of Babylon, and in the royal palace area, you remember they measure that in acres, not square feet, he found a statue. statue had been carved out in basalt. Does anybody know what kind of rock basalt is? It's a very black stone. And you know, this statue was of a massive lion with a man underneath him. And as they looked at it, they were concerned because they thought, that lion is not attacking the man. In fact, the man, and that lion is not feeding on the man. And as they looked more carefully and studied, they said, that lion is protecting the man. Now, who would know to tell somebody to make a statue like that? Daniel would. Now, there was an inscription on that statue, but somebody had decided Nobody should read that description, and they had chiseled it off later after. It makes me mad. I would love to know what that inscription said, although I'm still pretty understanding of what's going on here. Now, there are some people who will tell you that Michael is assigned, Michael the archangel is assigned as the protector of Israel, and therefore Michael was there, and Michael would have no problem preventing the lions from eating Daniel. Do you, Gary, believe it was Michael? Well, I do believe it was an angel. Okay, an angel, Michael, or someone else. It could be Michael. Um, I don't think it was Gabriel. Gabriel tends to be the, the spokesman for God. All right. But now, when we looked at chapter 3, how long were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah in that fiery furnished with the Son of God? Uh, probably an hour to an hour and a half. Because... We know that because it was so hot that it killed the men who threw them in, and the king's not going to go up there until it is cooled off, and there's been studies done by engineers say it would take about an hour to hour and a half to cool that off. So they got to walk around in that furnace spending an hour to an hour and a half with Jesus. Do you think they were silent the whole time? Only if Jesus was talking, because they were asking him everything. They were talking. Now... What do you think Daniel was doing all night in that 
just sitting there watching the lines. I wonder if one of them's going to eat me. No, he was talking to the Son of God. How awesome would that be to have all night? Keep me up, God, I would keep saying. Keep me up. Don't let me go to sleep. I don't want to waste a minute of this time in here with this person that I get to talk to that I love so much. Yes. Just an observation on this, too. Uh, this, this event in human terms was impossible for anybody to survive, and yet Daniel was elevated again. Uh, and also, uh, how much more was he elevated the kingdom and to finish out this book before all he was going to reveal? So he took on a whole new level. Yeah, there are other things in the book that hadn't been written yet. But also, it's whenever these angelic beings come and talk to David and deliver him prostrate, they say, oh, man of high esteem. A man of high esteem is someone that Jesus is going to be there personally for. Yes. When the angel of the Lord appears, isn't there a magnificent light? We don't know that. Not necessarily. He can show a light. But, for example, in uh, Exodus 3, verse 2, there was only light was the burning bush. And it wasn't overwhelming that he said, you know, that bush is burning and it's not burning up. I ought to go see it. Yep. In, in the armor. So Abraham, when the three came up before the two angels peeled off to go to Sodom and Gomorrah, there was not a bright light. So he can if he wants to. And many times he doesn't. Now, the king then gave orders in verse 24 that they, and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel and they cast them, their children and their wives into the lion's den. And they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Now, is anybody bothered at all by that statement? Well, why are you bothered? Now, I see here some saying children and some saying wives. Gary? Actually, there is a text in Deuteronomy that says that they are not to pity their enemies. Yes, but Daniel's not doing this. He's not involved in this. It's Darius. He is the one that is really, that's why you don't want to get caught lying. And the idea here is, we think uh, a person is responsible for their own actions, and they should pay for their own actions, but not innocent people. You know, my thinking is someone to say, well, Brooks committed this crime, so his wife and those two little girls ought to die too. I'd say, that's crazy. I'll fight for that. But the oriental mind is different. And they see the man responsible for the family. When Joshua spoke, what did he say? As for me and my house... We're going we're gonna to serve the Lord. Well, you think about it. When he's doing that, he thinks he can speak. For, and they believed he could. And he could. When the Philippian jailer was spoken to, what did he say? You and your house, because your house will follow you. What did God say when Achan stole a Jericho? Who, who's to be stoned? He and his family. That's the way... Oriental mind at this time thought and saw. Don, do you have a question? Also the rebellion of Korah, but I was going to mention the Code of Hammurabi. When you read through the Code of Hammurabi, it mentions that the whole family would take responsibility. That's, that's the thinking in the Near Eastern mind at this time. Donna? Thank you, God. What a special blessing on obeying the And to be and to lead the children in the right way. Children, that's adult children too. 
Yep. Mark? I, I think it also demonstrates how close the relationship was between Daniel and the king. When the king got his opportunity, he, he was merciless. Yes. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. With this kind of vindication, and Daniel was certainly vindicated, you would think that these, immediately after bringing him up, these attackers would be a little squeamish. Uh, they came to learn too late that when you attack God's man, you're attacking God. And they came to learn too late this principle. You attack God when you try to silence his messenger. That's an important... You are attacking God when you try... You send a missionary over somewhere, you know that if somebody attacks that missionary, they're attacking God. A second principle I think that we need to see here, when you lie to those in authority over you, the consequences will usually be very severe. And we need to understand that. Gary, you had a point? Yeah, it's, uh, in uh, Second Kings chapter 19, um, this is when Sennacherib was going to attack uh, Hezekiah in Jerusalem. And he prayed, and so Isaiah tells him, she has despised you and mocked you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She has shaken her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Verse 22. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? And against whom have you raised your voice? Probably with not your eyes against the Holy One of Israel. So here again, when Sennacherib, the Assyrian, came to attack, he wasn't just attacking God's people, he was attacking God. And that point, it should be one we should all recognize. Now, just like Nebuchadnezzar did before, Darius is going to write a proclamation. Because now his faith is different. He now saw God in action. And what does he say? I want to serve that God. And so you look in verse 25, then Darius the king wrote to all the people's nations and men of every language who were living in all the land, may your peace abound. Now wait, who says may your peace abound? What kind of greeting is that? That's a Hebrew greeting. Shalom. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and enduring forever. And his kingdom is one which will not be dismayed, and his dominion will be forever. And he delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. That went out to everyone. And so everyone now is able to see again Israel's God, the one that Israel would not champion and spread the news of. They have to rely on the Babylonians and the Persians and the Medes to do it. Now let's look at Darius' testimony here for just a second. I believe he came to know the Lord personally. Daniel prospered because Darius knew whom he served. Now let's try and understand some events here. Darius has now recognized that God is the one true God. And as Daniel's righteousness is vindicated by God's deliverance, it establishes Daniel's worthiness to convey and record the prophecies set out in chapter 7 and thereafter. But chapter 7, the, the vision specifically given to Daniel. Also, the actions of Darius in executing all those who attacked God's ambassador argues that he recognizes God's sovereignty and that a personal relationship is possible with God. This passage seems to indicate that Darius's reliance upon the Lord is not something that was temporary, like it was for a while with Nebuchadnezzar, 
but it was permanent. And his announcement is public, and it calls on all the members of his kingdom to do likewise. Now look finally in verse 28. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Now, if that were true, then Darius certainly, with Daniel's help, would take this message to the supreme ruler of the Persian Empire, Cyrus the Great. Now, I want you to remember something. Do you remember how the government in the kingdom of Babylon under Darius was set up? Remember what the first level was? 120 satraps. Second level, three commissioners. Final level, king, right? Do we have any more satraps? They're all dead. How many commissioners do we have? One. How many kings do we have? So that government's going to have to be all set up over again, right? Who's going to be picking the satraps and the commissioners now? Daniel. Who's going to be communicating with Cyrus? Who's going to have interaction with him? Daniel. Why did God set that up? Because if you really look at it, God's purpose was not just Darius, but Cyrus was his man, just like Nebuchadnezzar was his man. He was going for Cyrus. That's who God wants. And when God wants a man, what happens? He gets him. That's exactly right, Don. He gets him. In fact, I want you to look at 2 Chronicles chapter 36, starting in verse 22. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Now, does that sound like a man who has a personal relationship with God of heaven? It does to me. How did he get that? Daniel. Do you see that? That's why one of the characteristics of non-compromising life is that you will have unlimited influence. Unlimited influence. Think of all the kings that this captive from Judah has had access to and have influenced. Whether it's Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar, all those listening to him there, and Darius, Cyrus, even down to the wise men who came to give Jesus gifts, they learned what they learned in Daniel's library. And you need to see this. So let's go on. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he's appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem. That sounds like Solomon, doesn't it? And that's exactly what he's saying, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may Yahweh his God be with him and let him go up. It's going to say the same thing in Ezra 1.3. Now you'll see in the notes, the, the next part of that has to speak of that basalt statue that I found and, and what it says. Now there's a few things I want to look at about Daniel before we go through the rest of this book. And I have a few minutes left, and, and we'll spend those looking at that. First, I want to see this. The reader, if you read carefully this book, these first six chapters, you'll see that the primary reason for Daniel's success is his consistency. He is consistent. Consider just the passages in, in, this, uh, in this chapter. He was distinguishing himself. That's uh, 
imperfect, meaning it's a continuing action verb. He was faithful. He constantly would serve. So who was, you know, it's one thing to say Daniel was consistent. Well, consistent in what? Don't just tell me he was consistent. Tell me what he was consistent in that made him so great. Well, I'm going to show you. That's a good question. Number one, his attitude. Daniel never gave evidence of a bad attitude anywhere in this book. He was always calm. He never panicked. Whoever spelled that misspelled it. Uh, because of his faith, he was always polite and respectful. Do you know some believers who could maybe improve their attitude? No, probably don't know anybody like that. Uh, number two, he was consistent in his performance. He was there when he was supposed to be there. He took his assignments seriously and he obeyed orders. The other officials could find nothing wrong with anything he had done or anything he should have done that he hadn't. He was not corrupt. He was not negligent, either careless or guilty of bad judgment. Number three about his consistency was purity. Do you know that he was one of the three most righteous men to ever live at the time of Jeremiah, pardon me, at the time of Ezekiel? Ezekiel wrote that in Ezekiel 14, 12 through 14. Now, I'm not saying Daniel never sinned, but I don't think you can name one sin that he ever committed because he was consistent in his purity. And finally, he was consistent in his prayer life. Throughout the book, we see Daniel as a man of prayer. If you look in chapter 6, verse 10, it said, as he had been doing previously. It's interesting, as I look back at that passage, which we studied last week, and I looked at it again, it says, as he had been doing previously. You could translate as because. Why did he pray? Because he'd been doing it previously. Now, you remember we talked about his prayer life last week. We're not going to go through that again. But there's a couple of other things, and I, I'm short of time, so I'm going to move quickly here if I can. Let's consider some other characteristics of Daniel's life. He always sought the kingdom of God and not the kingdom of man. Sometimes we get wrapped up in what we're doing we're not looking at what God wants and what God's plans are. We're looking at what our plans are. And when we're praying, we're praying, God, bless our plans. No, God said, I'm not going to bless your plans. I'm going to want you to want my plans. That's when I'll bless, when you're about my plans. He lived a consistent life when he was young. It was consistent again when he was in middle age. And now it's consistent when he's old. He's, he's in his mid-80s here. He fulfills his divine calling by doing cheerfully what God wants him to do. Sometimes we say, okay, God, you want it, I'll do it. That's not the way God wants us to do it. He wants us to do it cheerfully, like giving, being a cheerful giver. He maintains a good attitude throughout. The world would hate him and be jealous of him. But did Daniel become embittered? No, not at all. Now, his only time they condemned him was because of his righteousness. And he's known for his virtue and his integrity, even by his enemies. He was a faithful citizen and remained subject to human law until it clashes with divine decree. He sets that up for us. Are we going to be put in a position sometime in the near future, do you think, where we're going to have a clash between human law and divine decree? What are you going to do? Do you give in? Do you intimidate you to be intimidated? Do you uh, compromise? Or do you say no? God said no, and so I say no. I'm not going to do it. I'm not compromising. You, you can do to me whatever you got to allow you to do. 
And I like saying it that way. You can do to me whatever God will allow you to do. And he strengthens the faith of others by giving them faith and encouragement. Gary, you had something you wanted to say? I don't think think Daniel would take all this credit. I I think we need to go back again to Deuteronomy. There's there's a a text that says, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30, where he says, he says, says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today, but I've said before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. But you like the movement you may live, you will be saved by loving the Lord of God, by obeying the voice, and by holding back to him, for this is your life, and the life of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord will be your fathers, and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did. The one thing he was consistent in, and not these things, he was consistent with the Mosaic law, the law of prophets. And you'll see that Hezekiah, you'll see that David, You'll see that through all the scholars. Uh, you'll see it through Josiah. You'll see it in. Uh, in uh... I I understand, and I see that. I agree with you. They do that, and and Daniel would not be proclaiming himself. He would be like Paul. I mean, Paul's probably the greatest missionary we've ever seen. Yet he said, "I'm the lowliest or the greatest of sinners." But the fact is, and. and We're not going to have time to go through the rest of the notes. You can look at them today, but turn back to the very back of them. Uh, I want you to start in in subpart F. There's two things I want us to look at before we finish. First of all, let's compare Daniel's night in the lion's den with Darius's night in the palace. It's a little comparison. A believer who is trusting in God and relying on him can be happy and contented in the den while the unbeliever or, let's say, the immature believer is miserable in the palace. He was miserable. He came out and called him with a troubled voice. Looking back on it now, if you had your choice, where would you want to be? In the palace palace. or in the pit? It's not too fun in the palace. Now, you think about this, Don. You say the palace. If you knew you were spending all night with Jesus in the pit, you'd still choose the palace? Yeah, I thought so. The second thing I want you to see is, you know, we laugh about it. Is Don making that choice? We're all going to have to make that choice, I'm convinced, soon. We're going to have to make a choice. We're going to face our own den alliance. Hopefully, we have been prepared spiritually sufficiently. That is with a consistent walk of God. And if I'm, if I'm thinking about this, And you ask me, well, Doug, what do I need to do to be prepared? I would focus on two things, two things. The Christian must put away every appearance of impropriety. And the way he does that is through spiritual inundation and time spent with the master in prayer. You're going to see in Daniel 9, what is Daniel doing? He's reading God's word over and over in Jeremiah at, at that point. You've already seen his prayer life. If we want to be successful, when the time comes that we face the lion's den, some people may like that, some people not. I I enjoyed it. Walk in like Goliath, fight like David, because I have your back. So the thing is, what are you going to do? If you start getting prepared right at the time the attack comes, you won't be prepared. You got to start now. Got to start now. Ed, do you think scriptural memorization would have anything to do with that? Ed's encouraging me. 
to be involved in a scripture memorization program that he's uh, found that he thinks is really good. And I'm going to uh, spend a little time here, uh, even on the way to Tampa next week. But let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the time that we could spend together. I thank you for saving this book of Daniel for us. I know that this book was written to encourage your people during these horrible time of the Gentiles. But I also know, Father, it's there to be a guideline for us as now we're living in a pagan world. The rest of the world may have been in that situation for a long time before now. America is really facing it now, and you know that. Help us to hold the principles of this book close to our bosom. Help us to allow you to burn these principles down into our soul so we can understand the importance of not compromising, not even compromising a little bit, because what a little compromise breeds, big compromise. Pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.